Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Changes at the Federal Reserve. A new chairman, Jerome Powell, taking over from Janet Yellen, who chaired her final meeting yesterday and uh, on Tuesday. Here to help us understand the future of the Federal Reserve is Robert Eisenbeis. Bob Eisenbeis is the vice chairman and chief monetary economist for Cumberland Advisors, and they're based in Sarasota, Florida. Bob, thank you very much for being with us. As a uh, former uh, employee of the Federal Reserve at the Reserve Bank of Atlanta, uh, what can you tell us about the new Fed in context for a selection of vice chairman or vice chair, and uh, who do you believe will fill that role? Well, the uh, organizational issues right now are pretty challenged because of the large number of vacancies, and uh, there are a number of names being floated. Obviously, the one most recently mentioned is John Williams, and John would be uh, a very experienced and uh, well-qualified economist. I think that's probably one of the objectives that the administration has since uh, new chairman Powell was not an economist. To have an economist as a vice chairman uh, would be essentially uh, putting someone like that in a supportive function. Um, the vice chairman role changes quite a bit. It used to be historically that the vice chairman was sort of the operating officer of the organization, but that's changed uh, as time has changed. Um, I think the real challenge right now is to essentially uh, deal with the fact that uh, given the present structure of the board and as uh, Chair Yellen leaves, uh, the reserve banks actually will have the do dominant vote uh, as far as policy is concerned. And I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for uh, new Chairman Powell. Bob, this is Taylor Riggs. I'm filling in here for Lisa Abramowitz, who's out on assignment. You you mentioned uh, Janet Yellen. And, you know, yesterday on Bloomberg Radio and TV, we spoke with Alan Greenspan. He, of course, would not comment on Janet Yellen's legacy. Uh, as you think about her legacy as the outgoing chair, uh, of course, she was the first female chair of the Federal Reserve. What else comes to mind when you think about her legacy and her term? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked uh, that question, because uh, when you consider the State of the Union address and all the claims that are being made as to who gets credit for what's going on, I don't think that uh, either the previous administration or the current administration can claim credit for what's happened as far as the economy is concerned. I think that is a tribute to Janet Yellen, that she has helped guide the economy and policy when 
administrations and Congress are sitting on their hands, it's really hard to point to specific initiatives that either administration put in place that you can link to the overall performance of the economy. Uh, I know Republicans will claim the tax cut, uh, but that's in the last month and a half or thereabouts. That doesn't explain the past four and five years of uh, growth that the economy has had. So I think uh, the position that Chairman Powell uh, has when it comes to the economy that he's inherited, that's her legacy at this juncture. Okay, so you mentioned Jay Powell. Let's go with that. Going forward, what's his biggest headwind this year? What would be his biggest challenge? Like you said, he's been given a, a decent economy here. Right. I think this is a case where uh, he wants to practice the Hippocratic Oath, uh, do no harm. Uh, do no harm in this case means don't uh, rush uh, with uh, a lot of rate increases. I think they're going to be very cautious about what they do. Partly because, as was mentioned uh, in the lead-in to the whole program here, is the fact that with interest rates right now on the fixed income side moving up, uh, that's essentially doing the Fed's job for it. So the Fed looking out at the markets and the interest rate environment, that's a, a situation where rates are going up, and as a result, the Fed doesn't need to essentially act to try to move things in that direction. So they can afford to wait and be cautious and see how things sort out. And I think that's probably what he's going to have to do and manage. And I think he's got a, uh, an FOMC right now that's uh, – in sync with that kind of uh, concern. Bob Eisenbeiss, uh, if you're an institutional investor and you have the option to uh, buy or sell bonds, you don't have to hold them, perhaps like an insurance company or a pension plan, uh, would you be suggesting that the institutions sell their bond holdings or at least reduce them? Well, I think uh, what they want to do is you want liquidity to be able to reinvest at higher rates, and probably a barbell strategy is probably something that you can do. I think the the biggest concern is to be sure that you're being compensated for the maturity risk that you're taking on. And with a very flat yield curve, uh, there's a tendency to, particularly if you're dealing with clients, to try to keep them from reaching for risk where they're not being, and, and reaching for rates where they're not being compensated for either the maturity risk or in the case of uh, uh, corporate bonds and municipal bonds where they're not being compensated for the credit risk that they're taking. How do you measure that, that's the real challenge. Bob, how do you well, measure that? I mean, for example, I mean, if you tell me, all right, the duration risk on a 10-year at 273, how do you actually measure that duration risk That is in a way that is meaningful to the investor? Well, I think you have to use history in that particular case. And uh, in the case of the credits that I'm talking about, you have to dig into the underlying cash flows uh, that are being uh, uh, forwarded on those instruments and uh, make that judgment. Uh, Bob, just finally to wrap it up, you talked about rising rates and the yield curve. The the yield curve does look flat, uh, both the twos, tens and the twos, thirties. You know, my question is, does the flat yield curve concern you, or is this sort of normal in this late-stage business cycle? Well, we don't know because we've never had this kind of a length of a business cycle combined with uh, central bank activities that 
to have pumped so much liquidity in the marketplace. So we're in uncharted waters when it comes to this situation. I know a lot of people are concerned about a flat yield curve and what that might mean in terms of inversion and signaling uh, recession and everything else. If you sort of take a look back, however, at what's happening in the real economy, the real economy seems to be doing pretty well and doesn't be doesn't seem to be showing any signs of recession risk uh, at this juncture, at least. So, uh, And it's not, in my view, a case where the markets are going to cause that kind of problem, absent some unanticipated shock. And uh, we don't see that yet on the horizon. Uh, but you just have to be cautious because of this flat yield curve uh, in terms of where you position your, uh, your holdings. Bob and Eisenbeis. I think right now, shorter time is better than longer. Bob Eisenbeis, thank you very much. Vice Chairman and Chief Monetary Economist at Cumberland Advisors. They're based in Sarasota, Florida. Joining us here in our studio is Shira Oviday, our expert for all things technology. She's a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and uh, she's going to tell us about uh, what is she going to tell us about? Well, Taylor? I've been dying to ask this question, Shira, so I'm so glad that you have been able to join us. All about if Amazon is getting too big. I know ahead of their earnings report, I believe this might be the second report where Whole Foods is now included. Earlier this week, we all know that they talked about creating a healthcare company with J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. At what point is Amazon getting too big that they start to draw eyeballs maybe from regulators or antitrust officials? I think that's happening already at Amazon's current size. So one of the most popular parlor games among academics and economists of the last year is debating whether Amazon is currently a monopoly, given its market share in online shopping and its ability to dictate that market and also to have a big hand in uh, job creation or, or where jobs are created. Amazon now has 540,000 employees. Um, that jumped up a, a large number once Amazon acquired Whole Foods uh, towards the end of last year. And look, Amazon is at the size, like a lot of these tech giants, where they're attracting scrutiny from regulators all over the globe. Talk to me about margins. Uh, are we going to start to see more investors more focused on margins? We know, of course, at this point, they've been ignoring that in lieu of gaining market share. At what point do we need to start to be looking at margins? I don't know. I think investors kind of go back and forth about how much they care about Amazon's profit margins. Uh, who who knows what they feel like today? I guess we'll see um, once the company reports. But look, the story of Amazon almost since the beginning of its history has been they take almost every dollar that they earn and they plow it back into the business. And so far, largely that has been a good bet on the smarts of Jeff Bezos to intelligently invest shareholders' money. At some point, they may not believe that anymore, and you see some quarters um, investors are more nervous about Amazon spending than other quarters, uh, but that's definitely been the consistent strategy at Amazon. So what do we need to pay attention to on the earnings report today? Because you got, what, prime customers. Everyone looks to see whether there are more prime customers because, of course, they pay the subscription price. And then you've got the expansion of that fulfillment by Amazon and that, some people say this could be a record quarter for the company. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from all of the data that we've seen so far that the holidays were 
very, very good for Amazon. The company continues to um, expand its market share in online shopping, and that's a category that continues to grow quickly around the world. I think what investors are looking for is, in addition to revenue growth, what are they spending, right? Back to this kind of margin question. Um, and, and what are they spending it on? Is it on fulfillment centers, on these package warehouses? Is it on the video service, which I think has been a little bit of a wobbly business for Amazon? Is it on Amazon Web Services, on their advertising business, so what they spend? And I think uh, there's going to be a lot of focus on the uh, forecast for this coming quarter, because this is a year where investors so far have been expecting Amazon to generate higher profits. Uh, and so we'll start to see that reflected in the forecast. I want to shift to the other A. We're talking about Apple, of course. We've heard a lot this week about production problems with the iPhone 10. Is it too early to tell what's going on with the iPhone 10, or are we going to get some more details about that? Yeah, I think it's been very interesting to see the changing sentiment about iPhone sales just in the last few months. There was a belief a few months ago that the iPhone 10 was going to be this blockbuster that was going to a sharp, significantly increase the number of phones Apple sells after a couple of either down or modestly up years in unit sales. Uh, I don't think investors think that largely anymore, that the iPhone 10 story is less about how many Apple sells and more about what price is Apple getting from those phones. That's a $1,000 and up phone, right? So that is inevitably going to increase the average sale price for the company. And that's good news for Apple, although it, it, we'll see the puts and takes um, how quickly the, the revenue grows. Well, revenue, we got the, what the estimate is for 87.3. So let's say 87 billion of revenue and net income of nearly 20 billion uh, for the company. What What's the most important number? Like, what would you think will be traded on uh I think the the biggest uh, the biggest focus of attention is going to be on the forecast for the March quarter. Um, Apple gives a revenue forecast, so investors will use that to extrapolate. Okay, how are iPhone 10 sales likely to go in the in the March quarter, and what does that mean for the rest of the year? You can extrapolate some assumptions about um, iPhone sales for the rest of the year from the March forecast. And I think there's a lot of anxiety about uh, Apple's potential revenue growth this this fiscal year. And that March forecast is going to be, I think, ultra important. Well, and they also got to face competition because on February 25th, guess what? Samsung is going to launch its Galaxy S9. So that's a, a, com a competitor to the Apple uh, iPhone. You call it the X or the 10? Apple calls it the 10. Um, I have tended to call it the X mostly just to thumb my nose at Apple. I guess. Yeah. It's the 10. Okay, it works. All right, well done. Thanks very much. Shira Oviday, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist for all things technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
here to tell us a little bit about what's going on in the world of electronic payments is David Ritter. He is our payments and specialty finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Shares of PayPal, they're down 6%. The shares of eBay, they're up 15%. David, I know you can tell us why. Sure. Well, I think the you have to keep PayPal in context of how the stock is done. Um, it had nearly doubled in 2017. It was up another 15% this year. And, you know, I've been saying for months, yeah, the fundamentals have been very strong. And, and the trends continued in the fourth quarter with very strong acceleration in account growth and revenue growth again. Um, so I, I think the eBay loss is going to be manageable over time. It's going to be staged out over the next several years. I think the company could have done a better job of telegraphing some of the impacts ahead of time, um, but I think this is natural. And we're seeing the stock rally actually quite a bit here in the last hour already. Uh, David, it's Taylor Riggs here. I'm wondering, Hi. you know, after eBay said that it will shift its payments business to uh, the Dutch company uh, Audien from mm-hmm. PayPal, why why now? Right? Don't Doesn't their partnership extend through 2020? Why did they talk about this now? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be clear on what it is they're actually doing. So they have an agreement with PayPal um, that governed when the two companies split, a five-year agreement. And they're at the point now, at the halfway point, where um, eBay is permitted to allow other companies to be their primary payments processor. So PayPal is a unit called Braintree that does that function. So they're really only transitioning their core processing. They're still going to be accepting PayPal. I mean, they're not taking the PayPal button off the uh, eBay merchant. So that's important to bring up. Um, so this is something that's been in, in the works and a possibility for some time. The other important thing to remember is, on the other hand, the agreement also prohibited PayPal from signing up certain marketplaces that eBay competes with, and they're going to be free to do that in the next couple of years as well. Hey, David, uh, and as you noted, uh, the stock uh, of uh, PayPal was trading around seventy six sixty nine on the open, and then now we see it uh, as much as seventy nine eighty two. So yes, a turnaround, although the stock's still down about $5.50 a share. Can you tell us about MasterCard? Because uh, they, along with Visa, they are also considered this uh, you know electronic payments uh, giant. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a sign of really very, very strong global growth, not just a U.S. story, but globally. You know, you saw acceleration in payments growth in the fourth quarter and in cross-border payments, which is a really lucrative source of revenue for them because they're translating currencies that they charge an added fee for. Um, They're really cranking on all cylinders, and partly it's the transition from cash and check globally to electronic payments, and obviously they're a a dominant central player, and um, they're certainly benefiting from the shift of commerce to, to mobile channels as well. Yeah, David, talk to me more about the outlook for this continued shift to digital payments when it comes to MasterCard. Is that helping with margin expansion, given the high margins there in the cross-border sales? Yeah, I mean, you know, the interesting thing about both both Visa and MasterCard, by nature, they're very, very high operating margin businesses because when you think about it, it's really a giant computer system and communication system. So high fixed costs, but the incremental cost 
of each transaction is very, very, very low. So as transactions convert from cash and check over to electronic means, um, that's pure profit. And so what it's allowed both companies to do is to say, okay, well, we're going to take that natural margin benefit that we have in our model and reinvest it in, in digital initiatives and in trying to grab other types of payment flows, not just consumers paying businesses, but maybe government dispersing funds to consumers, maybe businesses paying each other. And so you saw MasterCard buy an ACH company based in the UK. And so they're looking to grab the substantial portion of commerce that takes place um, outside the traditional consumer to business channel. So that's kind of their next leg of growth. Well, thanks very much for enlightening us. David Ritter is our payments and specialty finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Good morning. I'm Taylor Riggs. I'm filling in for Lisa Abramowitz. She's out on assignment. We are talking about artificial intelligence, and it is set to further disrupt the retail industry. Joining me now, Anurag Rana. He's here with us in studio, Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services of Bloomberg Intelligence. And over the phone, Poonam Goyal, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst, also with Bloomberg Intelligence. You know, my first question, you two, is the retail industry has already been facing some problems with disruption with Amazon coming in, disrupting really the entire sector. You two put together this massive report that AI will will further disrupt. I guess generally, is this a net positive or a net negative? Anurag, why don't you take that one? So one of the biggest things that we talk about it is today, you really don't need a lot of capital to come up with new stores. Um, so we follow a company called Shopify where you can go out and launch a store. Taylor, you can launch a, uh, any store tomorrow for twenty nine ninety nine a month with enterprise capabilities of payment, shipping, a look and feel of a very large retailer with very little capital. And every day or every year, I would say, we are seeing hundreds of thousands of these stores pop up that are targeted to your mobile device, to your Facebook, to your Instagram, and that's how you're going to shop next. Poonam, I want to bring you in because I understand that uh, Anurag uh, attended the uh, major retail convention uh, not too long ago, and uh, there was some technology that he was able to access that told him something about himself that he did not already know. Tell us about this experience. Um, so the NRF conference showcased much of this technology. I mean, think about, you know, going into a store and picking up an item and then putting it back down. And then the the retailer knows that you picked up this item and you didn't purchase it. So why didn't you purchase it? It not only provides intelligence on the product, but also it helped identify you as a party interested in that item. The other thing we saw was the makeup app. And I don't know if that's what Anurag was referencing. Yes. Tell but- us about it and how did he use it? Yeah, so I guess, you know, you walk up in front of a mirror or in front of a screen, they look at your skin, they tell you what you should do to improve your skin. It was quite interesting. Um, It's actually being used in Europe right now. They are talking to clients in the U.S., but it's about giving clients the right feedback. So it's about you. It's about the personalization, the connection to you, and it's individualized. So it's not one size fits all or one suggestion fits all, which is really what, you know, AI aims to fix. Um, everyone is unique and everyone should have a unique rep, um, recommendation. 
Okay, so at the end of the day, Alexa's giving me fashion advice, right? <laughs> Is this what it comes down to? See, that's just a tool that's going to help you shop a little bit better. But you have technology moving at such a rapid pace. Um, we saw uh, transactions that would be done through your Facebook Messenger. You could start buying things on a website and you know the, the data of that would go straight to your messengers. You would use payment systems through that to complete the purchase. You're bypassing a lot of legacy systems through it. And as I said, you could be a small mom and pop shop you are now competing head-to-head -head with very large established brands. Anurag, all right, let's say you're an investor, right? Let's be there and say, I want to get in on this. Who's making the chips? Who's making the actual technology that is making all this a reality? So believe it or not, on the tech side, it is still companies like Microsoft. Um, I, we heard that a lot, of invest, a lot of retailers are not working with Amazon because of uh, obvious reasons. So uh, you have Google Cloud, you have Adobe, you have Microsoft, you have IBM, you have SAP that's a very big player in that. So on the tech side, it's pretty much all the large giants we know. And it's all software. It's all software driven. So no no, no chip players in here that it, it's pretty ordinary chips well, that we, that no, we have in, already Intel, in our phones? Intel's oh. there, Samsung's there. So you, you would always have those companies that provide the uh, infrastructure and the cameras and uh, because facial recognition is a big deal. So you have those companies as well. Intel's a big player, obviously. But large portion of the value addition comes from the software providers. And Poonam, who on the retail side has started to use this? So it's not a lot, actually. American Eagle was constantly talked about at the show where they've, they're trying, testing, and implementing a lot of these technologies. But, you know, if you ask me today who's doing it well, there really isn't one brick-and-mortar retailer that I can think of that's implementing and using AI in a way that someone else can replicate or would want to replicate outside of Amazon. I mean, and that's not brick-and-mortar. What about Wayfair? That's the, uh, the online retailer of furnishings. I don't cover Wayfair, but Wayfair has been making strides from what I know to implement this. Once again, not a brick and mortar, right? So you see the e-commerce players do a little bit more on AI and on technology to get ahead of the curve. It's the brick and mortars that are really lagging, and it's them who have been suffering throughout this whole surge in technology. All right. Well, thanks very much. And just quickly, Anurag, what did the, what did the app tell you uh, for your face? A uh, lot of lotions. I'm not, I didn't buy any of them. I just... But yeah. you didn't make the purchase. No, I didn't. Oh, that doesn't sound like a successful transaction. All right, thanks very much. Anurag Rana, he is our Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services. Our thanks also to Poonam Goyal, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Check out their latest report, Bloomberg Intelligence, taking a look at artificial intelligence when it comes to the retail industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines.
Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.